AGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're joining us for the first time for the next hour, we'll be taking questions about the Word of God as you have been reading and maybe you've hit a point where you're not sure what it says or how it applies to your life. Uh, People call each week not just with Bible questions, but also with issues concerning uh, personal counseling needs and they want biblical counsel on. And if we can help, we'll do our best by the grace of God. All you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. It's 525-1859 for our internet listeners. And we broadcast WAGP.net through the internet 24-7 all around the world. And people call in from various places here in the United States. The toll-free number is 877. The call letters WAGP980. Or if you like, you can email us directly here into the studio. And it will pop up on the screen right in front of us, your question. We don't always get to every question every week. We take them in the order in which they come. And some uh, sometimes uh, we don't hit them all. But sooner or later, we will hit it. And uh, the the broadcast is posted on the Internet for you to see when your question was answered and where it falls in the program. And you can just scan through the bar until your question comes up if you want to just listen to the answer. And so the uh, email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Good morning, Rick. As always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor. And uh, last week we uh, had a, pre-ver- a pre-taped version of the Bible line. Uh, you had to officiate a funeral. And so, uh, uh, but we did have a listener who uh, heard it and they had a question. Okay, uh, let's go to that. Okay, they wrote, I'm writing from across the river in Savannah. I actually missed your show today. Wasn't in my car at the time. I keep my radio tuned to 88.7 and appreciate the excellent teaching offered. I was told by my sister who did listen today that you mentioned the problem of women teaching men. This is a tough issue, and I heard your wife discuss it on one of her programs last year. I believe that the Bible as we have it today is the inerrant word of a sovereign God and that we should use it as our guide in life. The problem you brought up of women teaching men is one that I would agree with you on. However, I do have a difficult time understanding how it is to be carried out in our public media-driven society. When I heard your wife talking about it on the radio, she particularly mentioned Kay Arthur, as I remember it. However, it did occur to me that if what the Bible says about women not teaching men in the church, i.e. not being preachers, were to be taken as a mandate for all situations, then your wife and any other women involved in Christian teaching could not be allowed to teach on the radio, TV, Internet, or through published works, books, magazines, ebooks, etc., because they would most assuredly have men included under their teaching in those situations. Where should we rightly draw the line on this? I do agree that we must be careful in this area and would appreciate your advice. By the way, have you read uh, Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus? And if so, what's your opinion of it? 
Let me deal with your final question first. No, I've not read Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus, but I saw him on his uh, uh, television broadcast explaining it and uh, questions being asked to him about the book. Uh, I don't think it's well done at all from what he said from his own lips, not having read it. He made some statements that were totally antithetical to what the Bible reveals. And uh, certainly, uh, I think he did his research, but it was research that was flawed and influenced by secularists and not really biblicists and those who understand the historical culture well. So, you know, it's going to sell, as most of his books do, and having done a book on Lincoln and other things, I think he saw this as an opportunity, but um, it's not well done, and fundamentally he denies Christ's death as substitutionary in nature, and yet that is the picture that runs from Genesis to Revelation. Bill O'Reilly, I remember he was um, on his radio show a few years ago, right towards the end of the radio uh, show that he had before he dropped that and went to television exclusively. And he was dialoguing with a caller, and he made this statement, well, you know, all religions are basically the same, including Christianity, that if you do enough good things, then in the end you'll make it into heaven and you know, God will accept you. So even the, the meaning of the cross is flawed in his thinking. And in an interview that was done and posted online that I watched, uh, it continues to be a flawed view of the death of the Lord Jesus. So it's unfortunate, but, you know, pray for him. Um, pray that God would open his heart to understand the gospel and all that it means, uh, because that's God's desire for him. Now, to get to your other question concerning women being pastors and how that might, uh, in turn, apply itself to radio ministries, uh, book ministries, and so forth. Well, first of all, the principle is very clear. Paul says that I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And the reasoning to show that this was not some relative application only to this particular culture, but a timeless principle, he makes that explicitly clear because he goes all the way back to the order of creation, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So God created Adam to be the initiator and Eve to be the helper. That was God's design ever before man fell. And so he makes it explicitly clear based on the order of creation that this is not some culturally bound application, say, like foot washing with the eternal principle being uh, servanthood. Uh, But foot washing obviously was a culturally bound practice, though there might still be areas of the world where it would still be very practical, but at least not here typically in these United States of America. But this is not some culturally bound mandate because Paul goes all the way back to God's original created order. And then he adds, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. When Eve stepped out of her God-given role, she opened herself up to deception. And so Adam is her protector. He should have been leading her, guiding her, watching over her. But he abdicated her responsibility, and she really usurped his role And in the process, she was deceived. Some would say, well, women are built differently by design. They will bring more of the emotional, relational side of life and man more being more analytical that they would say, well, women are more 
easily deceived. I don't think you can dogmatically say that. But I think what you can say dogmatically is that when a woman, or for that matter, anyone, steps out of what they know to be the will of God for their life, they open themselves up for deception. And that's precisely what Eve did. Adam was not deceived. It was Eve who was deceived. The Bible is very clear that Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew precisely what he was doing when he ate of the fruit that God told them not to eat. But then Paul adds positively, but women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So he reminds them that the means by which God continues to bring about the sanctification process in a woman is by carrying out the high and holy role that God has given her, and that is in the raising and shaping and discipling of, of children. And that's no small role. Uh, my wife says, well, I can teach men, just little men, little boys. And, and so what is clear in Scripture is that men and women are equal spiritually. Uh, but while they are equal spiritually, they are given different roles. This is typically called complementarianism, different from egalitarianism. Egalitarianism, a, a term coined about 20 years ago, says that men and women are not only equal spiritually, but they are equal in their roles. Where complementarianism says men and women are equal spiritually, but they are not necessarily equal in their roles, that by design, God has made us different. And so this gets a little bit complicated because you have some people who are egalitarian in the church, but complementarian in the home. What do you mean by that, Pastor? What I mean by it is that they would say that, yes, clearly a, a man is the head of his home um, and he is to be the head of his wife, but in the church, both can play a different role. And by the way, they, they, the way they get around this is they say, well, this passage here, you know, is just dealing with, um, with some, again, cultural issue. But contextually, you cannot argue that. This is not some cultural issue. And two, you really get into slippery territory when you say, well, the man is the leader in this home, but not in the church. Well, let's just uh, create an illustration here where the man's the head of his home, but his wife is his pastor. Well, how can he be the leader if he's to submit to church ecclesiastical leadership? He, He can't. And so the Bible teaches complementarianism in both the home and in the church. Now, that's not to say that a woman cannot, uh, that a man cannot learn from a woman. Uh, when uh, Paulus uh, was not real clear on some issues, he was kind of an Old Testament believer of sorts, did not know what Jesus had done and how he had fulfilled all of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. Aquila and Priscilla uh, came alongside and uh, taught him. So a man can indeed learn from a woman. And when my wife does say the Friday broadcast of Search the Scriptures, or for that matter, when Mrs. Uh, Miss DeMoss comes on here, I think at 1230 each day, and she does her program, all of those are done in the context of women teaching women. And so this is a ministry to women. That's not to say a man couldn't tune in and learn. And by the way, that's not to say that a man could not even go into a a woman's Bible study and do some analysis. In fact, uh, if you have women teaching in the church, one of the roles of elders 
is to make sure that those women are sound in doctrine because they are to safeguard and protect the church. So if an elder went in and started listening to my wife, there would be nothing wrong with that. That might be part of his responsibility if he, if he became suspect that she was in, in error. But there's a big difference between learning from a woman and a woman exercising authority over a man. So it's not inconsistent at all for a woman to write a book uh, in ministry to women or in ministry to women as they lead not just other women, but as they lead children, which is a primary role that they play. And that's no small role. If indeed the body of Christ would just do it well with their families, with the children that they are entrusted to. There's a lot of children that come to church in America that have no Christian parents. And the only people who are going to nurture them and protect them and guide them will be those in the church. And women play a major nurturing role in shaping those lives. Anyway, we could spend a lot more time on that, but what might be helpful to this caller would be to listen to my series on 1 Timothy. I did it about 15 years ago, and I did two one-hour messages on this very subject. And so it's in the series on 1 Timothy, and you'd want to pull up uh, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. And actually, there's even a message prior to that that deal with the role of women in the worship service as well. So it's a great question. Let's go to the next one. I think someone's waiting this morning. Indeed they are. And, of course, they can uh, get those uh, previous messages at searchthescriptures.org. That's searchthescriptures.org. We have a complete listing there of every message. And a phone app, right? Yes. They can download it through the phone app on either Apple or... or... Their iPhone, iPad, and now Android devices. Just, again, go to the iTunes store or the uh, Android Marketplace and uh, search for Search the Scriptures. All right. You're right. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. Yes. Um, I'm reading in First Samuel, and uh, I'm sure you've addressed this question before, but I'm unable to find it. There's at least three, uh, three verses where um, the, an evil spirit from the Lord uh, came upon Saul, and I'll just use First Samuel 19.9 because I'm looking at that right now. Sure. And... and I read so often, especially in the New Testament, that there is that God is. There's no way He could be evil. I mean, there's no evil in Him, and I and I, and I can see the intention of why He would put a spirit like that, you know, into Saul. But I don't understand where where it would come from. Because I thought I thought evil was a you know a, 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 something of, of 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 the devil of Satan. So I, I'm just a little confused, and I'm sure there's an easy answer. But well, um, let me quote Martin Luther here. Martin Luther said it so well when he said, the devil is God's devil. Now, that's an interesting thought to ponder. What Luther meant by that in the context when he made the statement was that God is sovereign even over the devil and the entire demonic demonic world. There's there's a limit as to what the devil can do. Uh, The devil doesn't have absolute free reign. And you see that, for instance, in the book of Job when Satan uh, comes into the presence of God and the B'nai Elohim, other angels of God. And he uh, looks at uh, Job and he basically says, hey, the only reason Job loves him is because you bought him. You've blessed him so much. But take away what you've blessed Job with and it will become obvious that his love is uh, is a paid-for love. And, of course, uh, God gives the devil permission to a point. He cannot touch Job's life. And so he gives Satan permission to a point. And so God sometimes uses the demonic world 
as an act of his discipline towards his people. Now, I will say parenthetically here that it is uh, highly debated by Christian men on both sides in women that love Christ and love the scriptures as to whether or not Saul was a believer. And I want to go down that trail today. I, I personally do think we will meet Saul in heaven. I think he was a rebellious believer, uh, lived uh, and made a lot of very foolish decisions. He was obviously a pre-Pentecost believer and did not have the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit. Um, But he was tormented by a demon. And of course, when it happened, um, David would come in and he would play his harp. And there's something about Christian music that has such power in it that the demonic forces cannot stand it and they retreat. And you could say, by the way, the corollary is true, that when a um, person listens to music, that I wouldn't necessarily say is inspired by the devil, but uh, certainly has his fingerprints all over it. Uh, The prince of the power of the air, Paul says in Ephesians 2, is the one who is energo. We get our word energy from it. He's energizing or working in the sons of disobedience. And so there are, of course, Christian rock bands that openly worship the devil And their music is reflective, I think, of some of his work in their heart. But Paul says, reminding us here in the New Testament, and I would put the passages in the Old Testament together with 1 Corinthians 5 to possibly help in this. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says it's actually reported. Akuete is the Greek word meaning it's broadcast, it's well known that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Here, the word Gentile being a synonym for pagans. In other words, there's something going on in your church, the Corinthian church, that even pagans find distasteful, namely that someone has his father's wife. Uh, There's a man in your church who's sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says you become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. You haven't exercised church discipline. You should have. You should have been disgusted and broken over this, but you did nothing. So Paul says, for I am my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. I can't physically be there, but I'm going to exercise my authority as an apostle. And then he makes this statement, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, of course, he's an apostle and there was a unique authority that was given to those men. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So I would take a text like this and parallel it with what you're reading in 1 Samuel 19, when Saul is tormented by a demon, where God gives a a demon permission to deal with God's own people. And again, the devil is God's devil. There's a limit as to what they can do. And in this case, in 1 Corinthians 5, God allowed the Satan, so to speak, uh, when this person was removed from the protective umbrella of the church, if necessary, to allow him to take his life. There is a protection that comes from being in a local assembly when you are in fellowship with that assembly. And there is something to be feared when leaders in a local assembly, because 
someone is carrying out the kind of sin that brings public disrepute to the local assembly into the name of Jesus Christ, when those leaders, following the principles of Matthew, uh, that Matthew's gospel outlines that Jesus gives us for church discipline, and he makes it very clear how that is to be done, and of course the ultimate goal of church discipline is restoration— But the Lord Jesus said that if your brother sins, you go and reprove him. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three witnesses. Why? Because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be confirmed. And if he doesn't listen, tell to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, you treat him as a Gentile, as a a pagan, as a sinner, as a tax gatherer. He's removed from the local assembly. And that's what the Corinthians should have done in 1 Corinthians 5. But because they didn't, Paul was going to do it. And when he's removed, then he's open to the destructive forces of the evil one. Now, the church didn't exist, obviously, in the Old Testament. The church is a New Testament phenomenon. There are people who want to read the church into the Old Testament because they want to make the church today the new Israel. And they take a Greek translation of the Old Testament and they uh, read the church in. Calvin did this. Calvin was uh, a little bit distorted in several realms of theology, though we'll meet him in heaven. Uh, but he had a twisted view of the church that I think was largely influenced by his Roman Catholic background. In either case, the devil is God's devil. And what happened to Saul only happened by the sovereign hand of God, but Saul brought it on himself because of his wickedness. The calls are stacking up here, Rick, so I wish I could spend more time on that. Let's go to our next caller. All right, indeed, we do have a live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Hi. I I wanted to ask a, a question about were there cigarettes in Noah's day? Were there cigarettes in Noah's day? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. There was tobacco in Noah's day because everything that God created, he created for a purpose. <laughs> Excuse me. It is true that after the fall, that some things became distorted from their original creation. You know, fire ants at one time weren't fire ants. They were friendly ants. But after the fall, they became fire ants. Uh, there were rose bushes that at one time when you went to pick the rose, you didn't get pricked by a thorn because there were no thorns in thistles. And there were certain plants that all had blessing wrapped up in them, but after the fall, uh, they brought consequence. Even after the fall, though, some things that bring negative consequence has have positive uh, effects. For instance, take alcohol. There was no fermentation before the fall. Fermentation is a result of sin entering into the world. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation is rotting, is waxing old, the King James says. It's going down. And so after the fall, things began to ferment. And of course, um, while alcohol is destructive, it can have beneficial in blessing behind it as well. And so Jesus told a parable of a good Samaritan who passes a man who's uh, wounded and been beat up by robbers, and he cares for the man. And among the things that he does is he pours uh, wine on his cuts and then oil over those cuts. And the wine would have acted as an antiseptic. It would have killed the germs, the bacteria, so that his cuts would not become infected, and the oil would have acted kind of like a Band-Aid. 
Uh, and so there were positive purposes. Wine would be mixed with water, typically in a four or five to one ratio, five parts water to one part wine. And it would take water that could otherwise give you stomach problems, uh, make it safe to drink. And so the Bible makes a distinction uh, between strong drink and, and other kinds of drink. So tobacco, you know, there are some medicinal purposes for tobacco where it's, um, they say it can be put on wounds and it can absorb infection out of a wound. Um, maybe that's what God intended for it after the fall, but there are negative consequences with tobacco. And uh, you're a young caller, and I'm glad you called because there are a number of uh, people today who I think very unwisely is selling to your generation especially that it's okay to smoke. And so even one major Christian school recently lifted its prohibition on the use of alcohol, gambling, and tobacco for all of its professors. Why? Well, I guess they want to be cool. You know, they want to smoke a cigar or a pipe or a cigarette. And they say, you know, everything in moderation. Listen, uh, it's not good for you, even an occasional cigar. And when we know something is a detriment to the human body, we should never, ever, ever use it. And our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we shouldn't do things that are destructive to the body, whether it's eating too much candy or smoking a cigarette or, you know, eating um, so much that we become more and more overweight and we are creating, you know, forms of diabetes in our bodies and high blood pressure and all kinds of problems. So many people with high blood pressure, their blood pressure would go down if they'd lose 30 pounds. So um, God's called us to take care of our bodies because our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So there was tobacco on the earth. Whether they smoked it back then in Noah's day, the Bible doesn't reveal. But man has always been pretty ingenious when it comes to creating his own sinful ways. So I wouldn't be surprised if they did. Now, maybe some things were done in ignorance. Uh, To him who knows to do right and does it not, to him it is sin. In other words, if you know God expressly prohibits something and you do it anyway, then it's a sin. Uh, You're not sinning in ignorance. And maybe someone could build a case, well, there was a time in the history of the church when Christians didn't really know how destructive tobacco was. What I find so interesting in Spurgeon's day, Spurgeon smoked an occasional cigar. And a lot of the Christians got all over him for it. And, um, you know, again, people today, they want to be cool and they want to smoke and everything. But Spurgeon knew better. And the people in that day, ever before we had the medical research that was done in the 20th century, knew it was bad. Why? Because people were coughing and getting sick over it, and people who didn't smoke were generally healthier, and they could just observe that. So in two, um, in this age, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And so when we do something that's wrong, God often causes us to doubt within. Like, that's not a good thing. He convicts us. And a good rule of thumb, when God doesn't expressly say something, um, is whatever cannot be done from faith is sin, Romans fourteen twenty one. In other words, if you can't do something in a good, clear conscience, don't do it. Uh, when in doubt, cut it out. So don't smoke. Don't ever light up for one time in your life. Appreciate that, young caller. Let's go to the next question. All right. Ginger from Beaufort writes, I sent a friend of mine your review of 
Sarah Young's Jesus Calling, as she finds it very helpful, as many of my Christian friends do. She asks, don't we also experience God through the presence of the Holy Spirit and through prayer as well as through Scripture? I'd like your response. Well, it's a good question, and not everyone knows about Sarah Young. She's a lady who wrote a book some years back, I I think maybe four years ago, three or four years ago, um, called Jesus Calling, and she presented some concepts in there that are somewhat dangerous uh, in experiential form of Christianity that supersedes the authority of Scripture by the way she describes and models her Christian life that she calls other readers to mimic. And so I did an analysis of her book, and if you want to go to searchthescriptures.org, it's still up there posted, and it's helped hundreds of people uh, to see the error. And it's not really a, a new error. It's just an old error repeating itself, where people put experience over the authority of the Word of God. The first caller today, there are question concerned, can women be pastors? And I will meet people and say, well, God called me to be a pastor. Well, he may have called you to minister, but he didn't call you to minister as a pastor in a local assembly because God's will never contradicts God's word. Oh, but he spoke to my heart. No, he didn't speak to your heart. He may have spoken and burdened you for ministry, but not ministry in violation of his word. But people put experience over the authority of Scripture. I spoke in tongues. I mean, it happened to me, Pastor. So it must be true. Well, the tongues have to be evaluated in light of what God has revealed in Scripture. So God does work in an experiential realm. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's very experiential. Uh, How does he do it? Well, he does it in prayer. He does it um, through the intimacy that we experience with him. Um, he burdens us sometimes to pray for something specifically, and he gives you a burden that he doesn't give someone else a burden. But any experience we have must be tempered by the Word of God. But when you have someone like Sarah Young who, you know, starts journaling, and she's journaling in the first person, basically, God said, God said, God said, that's very, very dangerous. Now, you might want to say, well, God impressed me and God led me, but you are saying that statement in the context of God's Word, and you don't make these statements on the same level of Scripture. And that was, you know, again, a a key point of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, That's what, you know, Catholics were doing uh, in, in that day. And it becomes a question, is Scripture alone our final authority? And it is. And so experience must be subservient to the authority of the Bible. You don't put experience over the Scripture and then try to find a verse that, you know, baptizes your experience as being true. You put your experience under the authority of Scripture. That's the way to approach it. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Our next listener would like to know, is it scriptural for a Christian single male to date a Christian young woman unaccompanied, or should they be chaperoned? For a Christian single male to date a Christian young woman unaccompanied, and should they be chaperoned? It's a good question. Um, There is some caution here that I would give you. Uh, the Bible says, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust, in regards to 
heart's desires. In other words, you, you don't put yourself in a situation where your life could be compromised. Um, you need to be really careful. The Bible doesn't address the issue of dating as such. Uh, it does address the issue of marriage and the ultimate goal of marriage. If you are a born-again Christian, is you're only to marry another born-again Christian. I caution people against what I call missionary dating, you know, where, oh, you like this guy or you like this gal, and, well, I'll date him because I think he's really cute, and, uh, you know, I'll try to win him to Jesus. Well, before you know it, you're emotionally attached, not to mention if you mar- if you date a pagan in this day, an unbeliever. Most unbelievers, especially in this day, because we are in a day of a, a, a low, low, low moral ebb um, where unbelievers have very little conviction as to keeping themselves morally pure. You, you put yourself in potential danger and the physical could easily enter in. Uh, I would just encourage you initially, if there's a young man that you like or a young lady that you like, maybe uh, to get to know that person initially in kind of a group setting. If you're a high schooler or, you know, say, Dad, Mom, could we have so-and-so's family over to our home? I kind of like, you know, Susie, and I just wanted to get to know her better to see maybe if this would be a relationship that I might want to pursue. And so you do it kind of in a protective environment. Uh, You know, someone's in college and there's a young lady they like. I would just say, you know, again, be very cautious here. Because you put no confidence in the flesh. You don't put any confidence in yourself because we are all susceptible to fall. And when you put yourself in a position where you could easily be tempted, then you're tempting the devil to tempt you. You know, when engaged couples uh, come uh, to me and they want me to marry them, there's an initial form that they fill out that some some things they have to agree to if I'm going to marry them because I'm not in the marrying business. I'm in the business of building Christian homes. And one of the questions I ask them is, are are, are they honoring the biblical principles concerning, you know, physical expression? And if they're not, then they have to agree to to put some stops. And one of the things I tell them, I said, look, um, you know, you have your apartment and he has his apartment. You should never go over to his apartment for dinner or vice versa. Why is that? Well, because one, it has the appearance of evil. Again, in this day, two single people going into a home with no one else there, more and more people today would say, well, we know what they're doing. And they would assume maybe they're being immoral. And so you don't want to do anything that even appears evil. And if you recognize that principle, it doesn't even appear evil, then you will keep yourself from temptation. And so if you're dating in a very public arena and getting to know that committed Christian in a very public arena, then you really don't put yourself in a position where you can tempt the devil to tempt you. So just taking that one principle, do nothing with the appearance of evil. Uh, would be very, very wise. Uh, Hey, when my son Jordan was dating his now wife Maureen in high school, he had his brother Jameson in the back seat. Uh, He went along. Uh, So, you know, there was some some safeguards that were put in there for his benefit and uh, to protect them, and they're so thankful to this day. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All righty, 525. Oh, well, actually, we did get a call, and it was along the same lines. They uh, wanted to know why Community Bible Church does not have a singles ministry. 
Well, I wouldn't say that that's entirely true. Um, I like to think that we do have a singles ministry and that there are singles that come here. We probably have more singles, I suspect, than any other church in the county just because of our size. Uh, We do have a ministry on Sunday nights to single mothers. For instance, there's about 15 single mothers that gather on Sunday evenings during the Awana ministry. Some of them have young children, some don't, but they have a place where they can bring their kids uh, for ministry while they have a chance to encourage and build up one another. But we do integrate uh, singles uh, through the whole ministry of the church based on their age. And I think that's healthy because, again, uh, what you discover is that when singles are mixed in with married couples, you have the benefit of their interacting with those couples. And we do have what we call kind of a college career young persons class that is made up mainly of singles on Sunday morning. Uh, And again, some people don't take advantage of our adult Bible fellowship hour. But if you start coming regularly to a church and you're not just there for the worship service, then you will discover there's a lot of ministries that are going on. Most every Sunday, I do with my wife a new member's uh, lunch. And I have eight people that I have lunch with that have newly joined the church or that have in the last three or four months. It's hard to catch up. Um, But in either case, um, one of the things I pass out to them is a little booklet that has over 30 ministries that are going on under the umbrella of Community Bible Church. And just recently, Rick, at one of those luncheons, someone said, well, I didn't know the church had a radio station. And I said, yeah, we were down the hall here. I said, yeah, it's, it's, right, it's right down the hall from here. And they said, I didn't even know there was a Christian radio station here in Beaufort. I said, yeah, there is. And our, our church owns it and has been given the stewardship of that station from the Lord. So there's a lot of ministries that go on that people don't even know about if they show up for a church service only Sunday at 11 o'clock. But if they start coming to other things, you know, when the church gathers on Wednesday evening for church picnics and other, they're going to meet other people who are single. It's it's impossible not to. And again, the place to find a mate if you are single is not in the, the bar room, but in, in the church house. That's that's the place to, to start. So thank you for that question. And uh, let's go to the next one. All right, Jack from Charleston uh, would like to know the following. Is Rick Warren of Saddleback Church okay to listen to? I've heard that he has some teaching that we should stay away from, he writes. Well, Rick Warren is our brother in Christ, so he knows, you know, Christ is his personal Savior. I would say that he, along with Bill Hybels, have introduced some uh paradigms for how church should take place that I think are very unhealthy. And a lot of people have ascribed to them because of what they produce. They produce large numbers of people. So he would argue, along with Bill Hybels, who is the founder of Willow Creek Community Church, and their churches started within a year or two of each other, that on Sunday morning, the church service should not be designed with the Christian in mind, but with the unbeliever in mind that it should be seeker-driven. I would say that it should be seeker-sensitive, but not seeker-driven. But they would say it should be seeker-driven. So the whole church service, they'll have sometimes secular music um, playing before, 
the service begins, popular, you know, cultural music of the day. They may have drama skits and other things that, um, you know, they they feel like would be entertaining and keep the uh, person's attention. And then the sermon would be relatively short, um, would have very little scripture in it, and um, filled with illustrations, again, with the unbeliever in mind. And then they would say, the, the Christians you teach during another time. And again, I, I think that's dangerous because, number one, the Lord's Day is for God's people, and God has given us a pattern in the New Testament as to what church should look like. You just read the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy in the book of Titus. And so this new paradigm is very dangerous because most people who gather, okay, so Willow Creek has 15,000 people in the greater Chicago area. Chicago has, you know, 4 million people living in in and around the city of Chicago. So they have about 15,000 of those 4 million people who show up on Sunday morning. Uh, On Wednesday night, they have a gathering of about 3,000 to 4,000, which actually don't represent just Willow Creek. It represents the broader Chicago area and hundreds of churches in the broader Chicago area who no longer offer Wednesday night services. And they would say, well, that's the teaching time. Well, again, the the problem with this is when most people come on the Lord's Day, God's people, if they're not well-trained and instructed in the Word of God, then you really do great detriment to their spirituality. And so Bill Hybels, you know, lauds Rob Bell, and even since he came out with his book, Love Wins, a book that denies the eternal retribution towards unbelievers, he has them doing seminars. Rob Bell is an apostate teacher. Why would he have him doing that? And why would the average person want to embrace that? Well, for the simple reason that they don't know any better. Um, And so if God's people are not really trained and well-taught in the Scriptures, they lack spiritual discernment. And when you lack spiritual discernment, um, you are open to all kinds of error that will come in the front door of the church. And that's what is happening now. And so the baby of the seeker-sensitive church is the emergent church. And the emergent church is filled with error and all kinds of apostasy. But it's the same thing. It's history repeating itself. This happened in Spurgeon's day. And Spurgeon said, listen, if we allow this to happen, this will kill the Church of England within 50 years. He he was wrong. It only took 25. And today, less than 10% of the people in the United Kingdom even go to church. And many of the churches they go to are dead and don't even have the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what's happening in America has happened in many local churches, good, solid churches that went apostate. No one could walk into Community Bible Church next Sunday and say, you ought not to believe the Bible. It's just a book of fairy tales and myths. But if you had pastors for a couple of decades that didn't really teach the Bible, then the people would not be sound in doctrine. And before you know it, there would be an unbeliever filling the pulpit and the people would be embracing all kinds of error. That's what can happen. It's happened to the great institutions in our country, all the Ivy Leagues, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all started by, you know, born-again Christians, uh, were once great uh, bastions of the Christian faith, but today, you know, have very little to do with biblical Christianity. And it's happened to many mainline denominations and many local assemblies. So, um, 
So I, I don't ascribe to what he's doing. It's very dangerous. It's very dangerous what Andy Stanley is doing and others like them. It, it's not a good thing. It's not healthy for the church. It produces great numbers, and so a lot of young pastors want to aspire to that pattern because they want to pastor, quote-unquote, a big church. Listen, we're to obey God, and if our church has—I'd rather have 50 people in the center of God's will than 500 people out of God's will. And we are to do what God says. We don't acquiesce to the world to win the world. It's our distinctiveness from the world that gives us the platform for preaching the gospel and for genuine conversions. And so when I see people come from these secret churches, Rick Warren's included, because we minister to military, and they come in from all over the United States. Many times they come and they don't even know what the plan of salvation is. And that's pretty sad. That That's sad. So I'm thankful for the people he's won to Christ, but I'm not thankful for the purpose-driven church. It's filled with error and um, has all kinds of... Um, uh, teachings in it that are not sound and they're not to be followed as a pattern. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All righty. Uh, Andrew from Beaufort writes, um, what does the Bible say about having tattoos? Are they wrong or is there anything not wrong with them? I've uh, already read the Leviticus chapter that mentions them, and it seems to me that this is one of the parts of the old law that Christians don't have to follow anymore. For example, animal sacrifices. Well, um, it's a good question, and in the book of Leviticus, um, God deals with the subject of of tattoos. Uh, He said, you shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. Uh, That's kind of interesting. Um, Is that simply a Old Testament practice, or does that have application for today? I can tell you divination is just as wrong, and soothsaying is just as wrong in that day as it was in this day. And eating anything with blood, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 15, um, it's speaking about, you know, drinking blood and eating blood is still wrong. There is still a sacredness to it. He's not talking about eating a a rare steak. But but if you want to listen to my sermon on Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council and some Gentile practices that were entering into the church um, that that God forbade, along with other moral issues like fornication, God made it very clear that that was not just some Old Testament practice, that it still had full application for today. In fact, here in Leviticus, um, it is true, you know, there are passages like in the prior chapter in 1823, also you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it. Uh, that's pretty, uh, pretty blunt pretty straightforward. Are you going to tell me that that has no application for today? Or the verse after tattoos, do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot. Uh, Prostituting your daughter was still, uh, was a sin then and a sin now. And then he says here, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks for yourself. Um, You know, I, I don't think it's wise. Now, certainly, you know, people have used different passages to justify, you know, making a tattoo. Uh, They look at um, the one that's often quoted is in Revelation 19. Let me just turn there because I don't want to quote it wrong. I can't remember if it's it's around verse 15 or so. Let's see, Revelation 19. Uh, Yeah, here it is, um, Revelation 19. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, speaking about Christ and his second coming, 
so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So they uh, say, well, see, Jesus had a tattoo. It doesn't say that. Uh, It says on his robe, he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And on his thigh, what's in his mouth? A sword. Maybe it's on the scabbard uh, that would be hanging from his side is written it. But I don't think he had a tattoo. And to build a case for that from this verse, you'd have to be guilty of eisegesis. We're to exegete the scriptures. We're to take out what they plainly say and then apply them. But we are not to read into the scripture what God does not say. Um, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. There are some things that might be permittable, but aren't necessarily profitable. Now, certainly, I guess if you had a tattoo, it'd be better to have a tattoo of a cross than say some naked lady. Um, And there's a lot of people who get saved and, you know, they have tattoos and some of them just wish they hadn't done that. Um, in First Timothy 2.9, God gives us principle that we shouldn't draw attention to ourselves. And I think tattoos tend to have that, um, that net effect. Uh, and two, a lot of Christians, when they ask me, especially younger Christians, about getting a tattoo, I say, you're kind of in a quandary, aren't you? Yeah, that's why I'm coming to you. I say, well, a good principle from Romans 14.23 is whatever cannot be done in faith is sin. So when in doubt, cut it out. So the fact that you are in such a quandary over this issue may mean that that's the Holy Spirit indeed causing you to doubt. And so, look, um, there's people in our church who got tattoos all over their bodies, and they wish now today they didn't have them. And some got them foolishly as young Christians. And you've got these pastors today who have no biblical training who are advocating all kinds of things. Mark Driscoll is advocating all kinds of things. The guy's never been to seminary. He's an error in many, 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 many issues. And uh, I'm glad he's, you know, reaching the people that he's reaching. But there are many young guys who are looking at the wrong models who really don't know their scripture well. Uh, You won't listen to John MacArthur or Alistair Begg or Carl Brogy or... Uh, Tony Evans advocating that you get a tattoo, and there's a good reason for that. So uh, I would encourage you not to do it. If you've done it, I mean, what can you do except to teach from it? Uh, You know, I won't be at all surprised with the way tattoos are going. And there used to be a time when I was a kid, the only people who had tattoos were either someone in the military or someone who's in jail. Um, You know, a lot of the delinquent people of life carried a tattoo. Uh, That's changed. It's become just kind of standard. And I won't be at all surprised if the 666 that people wear on their forehead or on their hand, you know, people say, well, it's an electronic chip. Maybe. Uh, Certainly that technology might just be a tattoo. Um, This society has become so uh, amenable to those, it may be a tattoo altogether. Anyway, let's go to the next question. I think we have someone waiting. We do indeed. Uh, Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Um, I was watching Good Morning America this morning, and they highlighted this. Uh, they did a segment on this pastor from a Methodist church. I think this happened about six years ago. He had a son who was uh, homosexual, and he ended up presiding over his son's wedding. 
uh, he checked with the church, the larger church, and they didn't have a problem with it. But I guess six years later, now there's a parishioner who has a problem with it, and they're talking about whether or not he should still remain the pastor. Uh, he went on to talk about how he loves his son and he doesn't believe. You know, he said Jesus never spoke out against, you know, homosexuality. I know that uh, you spoke recently about, you know, the, when the whole Chick-fil-A thing went on, how people would hold up signs saying Jesus never spoke about same-sex marriage, and you pointed out the book of Mark and the book of Matthew where the religious leaders were Question him about divorce, and yes, and he, he right. gave the pattern that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So Jesus defined marriage from Genesis as between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that I, I can point to that as far as the marriage. Now, even before, you know, all of this, I would, I would say to them that Jesus would come and say, do not think I've come to get rid of the law. No, I've come to fulfill it. Yes. And I would also say that because Jesus is God, he did speak on it in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But I was wondering, if, is there anything else that I could point to to say that he did speak out against homosexuality? Well, I think what you said is good from quoting from the Sermon on the Mount. There, there's a lot of things that Jesus did not expressly say, but he affirmed his stance in favor or against them because of his view of the Old Testament scriptures. So he said, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. So Jesus never spoke against abortion, uh, but the New Testament scriptures, which he affirmed the apostles would be uh, given the inspiration of the Spirit to write, make a distinction, make no distinction between a baby in the womb and a baby outside of the womb. And Jesus affirmed the authority of the entire Old Testament as being inspired by God right down to the tense of a verb over which he builds his deity over and right down to the smallest Hebrew letter that looks like an apostrophe in English or even the shortest stroke of a pen that distinguishes two uh, Hebrew letters, much like our capital letter O in in, um, printed style versus our capital letter Q is distinguished by one little slice mark. And so Jesus taught the inspiration of scriptures right down to that, and the Old Testament scriptures affirm life from the womb. And uh, Jesus never said anything about bestiality, but he affirmed that the scriptures were inspired, and so bestiality is evil and wrong. And Jesus plainly affirmed what marriage is indeed is. So, you know, that pastor is obviously way off. It's unfortunate. And I, I mentioned the, um, the baby of the seeker-sensitive church is the emergent church. And so Brian McLaren, who is speaking on evangelical platforms all across America for about 10 years, you know, he married his homosexual son last summer and performed the wedding. Um, that's the day we live in. That's why pastors need to teach the Word. We're out of time. Thanks for joining us today. Have a great day. 